Thanks, Marielle. Hey, everyone. Welcome to church. Just add my welcome to Rowan's. Uh, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Ming. Uh, I am currently studying theology over in Sydney uh, and coming back here to my home church, Auckland EV, who, who sent me there. Um, but it's been really great to be back. Uh, but sadly, this is my last week, my wife and my last week here. Um, so it's quite sad for us. Uh, we've actually really loved being back. It's been so refreshing to see everyone and see how the church has grown, both in number, all the new faces we've got to meet, but also in maturity, all the familiar faces who have persevered through different trials and the different ways that they've grown. It's been really great uh, to be able to see that. Uh, uh, but but enough, enough about me. Um, we'll be, we're looking at the question today, uh, why doesn't God solve my problems? And so why don't we pray to ask God to help us wrestle with this question before we dig in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word and how uh, you, you answer our questions through them, uh, and that we can engage with you through it, uh, both through uh, reading it, but also through prayer. And so as we come before you in prayer today, uh, we ask that you give us the ears to listen, uh, the hearts to receive your word, and also the strength to apply it to our lives. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the biggest problem in your life right now? What do you think is the most pressing problem in life for you? I know it isn't, it, this probably isn't something you want to be thinking about right now, uh, but I want us to be honest with ourselves on this. Uh, you, your problem might be something to do with relationships. Possibly it's a spouse or the person you're dating. Uh, or for others, uh, the problem is you don't have a spouse and you'd really like one. Um, for others still, it's, it's children the struggles of managing their children's behavior, or maybe the pain or heartache of not even being able to have children. It could be your parents, you're frustrated at a controlling mother, or hurt by an indifferent father. Your parents might be the pressure point in your life. Is it money, or more specifically, the lack of money? Maybe it's work. The constant grind of deadlines, and it just doesn't seem to end. Or maybe it's, it's your health. You don't like your body, or you have a health problem, or maybe someone close to you has a health problem. What do you think is the biggest problem in your life right now? And I ask this because in our passage today, we get to see Jesus solve some massive problems. A man comes to Jesus with what he thinks is his greatest problem, a problem so big, so massive, he's even named by it. We don't know who he is. We simply know him as a paralytic. This man is so gripped by his problem that his very identity is wrapped around it. And so today, like this man, we come before Jesus with our problems. Now, unlike this paralyzed man, though, we might not leave here today with what we'd want to have solved, but like this paralyzed man, I hope we leave here with what we need to have solved. So come with me uh, to verse 1 in our passage. This is how our story begins. Let's read it together. Come up on the screen. When he, when Jesus entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. At this point of Jesus' life, he's become so popular that when he shows up to town, he just gets mobbed. He got so out of hand that he couldn't go anywhere without people mobbing him. 
It even says at the end of chapter 1, the very last verse, that Jesus could no longer enter any town openly, but he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. Jesus was so popular, even going to the middle of nowhere, still had people coming out to find him. Now in chapter 2, the passage we're looking at, I don't know if Jesus ran out of food supplies or camping supplies, but he decides to come back into town. And so very, very quickly, people work out he's back. And so no surprise, he's mobbed again. In fact, so many people come to him that there's no more room in the house. It's not even outside the door. Just imagine it. You wouldn't be able to sit down the way you are like right now. It's standing room only. People are in your face, pushing around. It's a tight squeeze. Not only in here, but out there as well. Now, if you missed last week, you might be wondering, why? Why is Jesus so popular? What's the big deal? And throughout chapter 1, we saw Jesus pulling off a bunch of miracles, casting out demons, healing people from all sorts of illnesses and diseases. And so people were coming from all over to check it out and to bring him their sick. Now, just as an aside, one of the ways we know Jesus' miracles were genuine are that they were done in public. And like we see in our passage, people came to him from everywhere just to see them happen. I want to encourage you to be careful when it comes to stuff like this. I don't doubt that some of us here believe God's done the miraculous in their life. God can do anything. But we need to be careful when we hear people claim to have the same kind of power Jesus has to heal. And one of the ways we can test whether something is genuine is if all of Auckland, let alone all of New Zealand or the whole world, comes to see what's happened. Jesus' miracles were done in public, and there are testimonies throughout history of people gathering around him to see them happen. Now, it just isn't miracles that were pulling people in, though. We also see Jesus' number one priority was preaching, telling people about the gospel, God's kingdom, this massive news. And Jesus was a remarkable teacher. He was so remarkable that when he talked about sin or talked about repentance or God, for that matter, people wanted desperately to listen in. Nowadays, or maybe it's just me, when I do that, people just want to get out. Jesus was such a great teacher, people wanted so badly to come to listen to him. This is how significant his message was. So in our story, we have this packed out house, right? It's absolutely crowded around Jesus. Then in verse 3, it says, it's come up on the screen, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. We don't know how badly, this, how badly paralyzed this man is, when it happened or how it happened, but I tell you, in a country that didn't have disability services or a welfare system, let alone wheelchairs, this is an awful problem to have. My mom is paralyzed on the entire left side of her body, and my family's very thankful for the care she does receive. But even then, it's a huge struggle for her. This paralyzed man in our story would, be, would have been reduced to begging. And so this man, he probably doesn't have much. But one thing he does have is some wonderful friends. This man's friends are so loyal, so committed that they bring him to Jesus. They don't know how, they don't know why, but they know Jesus can do something about this man's condition. But the problem was, when they got there, they couldn't get to Jesus. 
They couldn't get through the mass of crowds that were cramming up the house and blocking every doorway and window. There was no disabled parking, no disabled access, but what there was was a flat roof. A low-lying, flat, wooden, mudden roof. That's what roofs were like back then. And so these friends, being creative in verse 4, climb up onto this roof with their mate on a stretcher and dig a hole in the roof. That's how desperate they are to get their friend to Jesus. Now, this isn't as crazy as it might sound, though. If you thought your biggest problem in life could be solved through Jesus, you'll do just about anything to get to Jesus, wouldn't you? If you were a good friend, you'll do just about anything to get your friend to Jesus, wouldn't you? And for these four friends, it isn't that Jesus is just one nice potential option. It's that they've realized Jesus is their only option. They have no answers left but Jesus. They're desperate. One of the ways God saves people is by taking away all their supports, all of their options. They're not coming to Christ when things are going well. Why would they? And so when God takes down our supports, our comforts, it's not because he doesn't love people, but it's because he loves people. He knows they're not listening to him, so he works to get them listening. One of the tragedies of life is when people who don't listen to Christ when things are going well still choose to not listen to Christ when things go bad. But all over the world, even in this room, you'll find people who will say, I'm actually thankful for the troubles that came to me. Because if it wasn't for the troubles, I would have never come to my senses. I wouldn't have come to Christ. Now, it's hard to miss the perspective of these four men. We might not be told explicitly what they were expecting from Jesus, but I expect their thinking, Jesus, I know you're preaching, I know what your agenda is, but this is our agenda. Our friend is unwell, he's paralyzed. And we believe that you've got the power to make him well. We believe you've got the goodness to stop your sermon and heal him. So, verse 4 on the screen, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Just imagine being there. This is a packed-out house. It's standing room only. Silence. All the religious gurus, neighbors, friends, family, the whole town is there, people from all over. Everyone whispers, what's going on? What's going to happen? What is Jesus going to say? What would you expect Jesus to say here? I mean, it's pretty obvious what this man's problem is. He can't walk. He's been lowered through the roof. Jesus has healed so many already. What we and the massive crowd expect is for Jesus to say, you're healed. You're healed. Get up and walk on out of here. But that's not what happens. Jesus does something different. Have a look. Verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, he says. You think healing is the top priority? It's not. The top priority is that you get forgiveness. Now, we're not told how these men reacted, but I imagine it must have been a combination of, of shock. What is going on here? Why is he talking like this? And a huge amount of disappointment. You can almost imagine them saying, look at the legs, Jesus. The legs don't work. 
Don't worry about my soul, Jesus. Don't give me a sermon about sin. Can't you see? Can't you put those things aside and just deal with my legs? Now, we know this man has a massive problem. He's a beggar. His identity is wrapped around it. He can't walk. But what Jesus does here is call out an even bigger problem. See, Jesus wants him to know, wants all the people in the house there that day, and wants you and me, he wants us to know that we can actually be blind to our most pressing problem. We can be blind to our most pressing problem. Now, don't get me wrong, this man had a huge problem. Being paralyzed is horrible. But Jesus, through this man, shows us just how big of a problem we all have. It's so much worse, so much bigger, that dealing with paralysis needs to be put on hold to fix it first. I don't know what you thought your biggest problem was at the start of this talk. I don't wish to trivialize it. There's no doubt in my mind that it's painful or hard, but Jesus disrupts us all here, doesn't he? Out of love, he disrupts us and asks us to consider that the biggest issue in life is our sin. Jesus is showing us that there are some things in life that are important, but there are other things that are essential. Legs healed, important. Sins forgiven, essential. The only disease that can really kill you is sin, and the only medicine that can really cure you is forgiveness. See, the issue isn't, can Jesus heal him? Of course Jesus can heal him. We've seen what he can do in chapter 1, and at the end of our passage, as Mariel read to us, we see this man walk on out of there. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus wanted to heal him. In chapter 1, verse 41, that tells us Jesus is filled with compassion when he sees those who are ill and sick. The issue is whether or not you have been forgiven for your sins. Have you got that sorted? Now, all this raises the question, what is sin? What is sin? Because many confuse it for an awful religious word. What does it actually mean? Sin is the desire to put yourself first. Sin is the attitude where we go, God, I know you've made me. You give me each breath, but I will place myself first in your world. I will run my life my way. And that might seem like a small thing for you. Most people I meet think it's a small thing. They might even say it's normal. But the Bible says this attitude is what cuts us off from God. It cuts us off from the source of life and goodness and purpose. That's how serious sin is. It's so pervasive, so universal, so blinding, people have even gone so far to say it's normal. Living in sin, living cut off from our maker, we think is normal. It's not. It's because of our sin that this world is not how it's meant to be. It's because of sin we hurt each other in word and action, and it's because of sin we deserve God's judgment. Our world is dying and is so unhappy because we've cut ourselves off from the giver of life. Our world has become like, like flowers in a florist, so beautiful at times, yet dying. And its beauty, its beauty blinds us to the fact that it's dying. Sin is our biggest problem, and Jesus is helping us to see that here. He sees what we can't see. 
Now, if you didn't get it last week, this is why Jesus' number one priority was preaching. Jesus would say, what good is it curing a person of leprosy if he still stands under eternal judgment? What good is it giving a man quality of life for 50 years if they're still going to face eternity in hell? Now, I'm not so naive to think that uh, you won't find this difficult to hear. And if you're anything like me, there are hundreds of things that feel way more important, way more urgent, blinding me to the fact that my sins need forgiving. But it's interesting. It's interesting because if you could ask this paralyzed man, if we could ask him 2,000 years later, what was important about that day? He would say, it was amazing. It was amazing to be healed. You know, I got new legs, I was able to get a job, I was able to have a family, play with my kids. I had an awesome 50 years. But when I look back, he would say, I've had an even better last 1,950 years and counting in relationship with an incredible God who made me. I'm so thankful for that day because my sins were forgiven. See this man? He came to Jesus for a small gift a gift called health, a very good gift, but a small one. But a Jesus instead gives another gift, a massive, infinite gift of forgiveness because he works on a much bigger scale than we do. So don't misunderstand this. We ought to desire and be thankful for things like health. We ought to ask God for these things. But nothing in this world, whether it's health, wealth, or happiness, will bring you to God. None of it will get you through the grave. Jesus sees what we can't see here, and he's giving us a view that we wouldn't see otherwise. Now, the thing is, the thing with this is, Jesus didn't just point out the problem. He wasn't just, you know, one of those annoying people who, who tell you what's wrong and then does nothing about it. Jesus didn't look down at the paralyzed man and say, guess what, you've got an even bigger problem. No, Jesus said, I'm here to deal with that problem. Jesus offers forgiveness instead of judgment. Jesus solves what we can't solve. And so, for the four friends and the paralytic, they might have been shocked or disappointed at that point of our story, but the religious leaders and the gurus in verse 6 had a much different reaction. They're not shocked or disappointed, they're angry. So have a look with me in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we don't get this. We don't get this because we think we've seen this before. Where some Catholic priest or some random on the street or someone like me tells you your sins are forgiven. And so we don't see how bizarre Jesus is when he says, the, says to the man, your sins are forgiven. But these scribes, they saw it. They saw just how crazy Jesus was because they knew sin was between you and God alone. Sin is between us and God, and it's only God who can forgive sins. No man can do it. It'd be a bit like if I walked up to you now, just got off the stairs and walked up to you and slapped you on the face. And then Rowan, he then decides to yell out, it's okay, Ming, I forgive you. What would you think? How would you feel? You'd probably say, well, I don't. What's it to Rowan? It's my face he slapped. And these scribes in verse 6, they knew that it was God's face we've slapped. 
It's God who we've offended. And so they knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was saying, I have the authority of God. I speak God's own words. Jesus was saying, I'm not just a man. I'm God in the flesh. When Jesus says he can forgive sins, he was claiming to be God. So in verse 8, we see Jesus knew what they were thinking. The doubt that's there, what doubt might be in our minds. This man, Jesus, he can't be God. That's impossible. But Jesus doesn't just say, take it or leave it, suck it up. He actually does something very kind. Because he goes on to say, I'm going to give you a proof now. A proof that when I say things, they happen. And so he asks the question in verse 9, if you think my words are empty, here's a question for you. On the screen, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? It's a great question, isn't it? Which is easier, to tell the paralytic man your sins are forgiven, or to tell him to get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, obviously for us, both of them are technically impossible. We can't forgive people for their sins, and we can't heal people. But of course, it's much easier to say with your mouth, you're forgiven, because it's untestable and unprovable. No one can check if you've pulled it off. But let's say my mum was here, sitting in her wheelchair, and I was to say to her, get up off your wheelchair and walk on out of here. That'd be a bit more difficult, wouldn't it? You'll all be watching, and in two seconds, you'll know if I'm talking rubbish or not. And so Jesus says in verse 10, what I'm about to do is going to help you to have confidence in me. It's going to help you to trust me and not doubt or turn away from me. Have a look with me, verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. By healing this man, Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet to the scribes and the religious people there. He's able to restore this man so instantaneously, so completely. Doctors can't even do this with medicine. Unlike us, for Jesus, healing the paralyzed man was the easier thing to do. He heals plenty of times throughout Mark's gospel, and we just saw a handful of them last week in chapter 1. But by the, <clears throat> but by the time we get to the end of Mark's gospel, the end of Jesus' life, we see him crucified on a cross. And we might think it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but there at the end of the book, the end of Jesus' life, we see how much harder it would be for Jesus to have our sins be forgiven. You know, if someone drops your phone, say, and smashes the screen, you've got two options, don't you? You either get them to pay for the repairs, or you can pay for the repairs yourself. Either way, someone has to, has to pay. It's either they pay, or you pay and forgive them. But let's take a, a more grave situation. Imagine someone has seriously damaged your reputation. Maybe they've, they've betrayed you being unfaithful, being disloyal. You've got two options here. You can make them pay 
by criticizing them, ruining their reputation, going to others hoping to fix your reputation. Or you could forgive them. You could take the more difficult task of repairing the relationship without slandering them. Either you make them pay, or you forgive them and you pay yourself. Now here's the thing with forgiveness. We know forgiveness is free. It costs nothing. But it costs the wrongdoer nothing. And it costs the one doing the forgiving everything. Do we get that? Forgiveness is always free to the, to the wrongdoer, but it always comes at a great cost to the one doing the forgiving. So here's the question. What does it cost Jesus to forgive this man his sins? What does it cost Jesus to forgive you? Because what it costs Jesus to forgive this man's sins and to forgive me my sins, it cost him his life. It cost his life because someone must pay for those sins. And Jesus paid it with death and blood so we might be forgiven and be in relationship with a great God. You know, for the longest time, I never really understood this. I didn't get why sin was such a big deal that Jesus had to die. It wasn't until I realized that sin isn't just about what I had done, but it was also about who I was offending. All too often, we think sin is just a list of bad things and forget that we are offending an eternal, holy, and perfect God, the creator of the universe. Any offense, even the smallest offense to someone so, so massive, is infinitely costly. So I need to ask the question, have you recognized your biggest problem? Have you been forgiven for your sins? You might look at your life and think, my relationship with God, it's going to be fine. I have other issues, bigger issues to deal with right now. Let me assure you, there is no bigger problem than facing the creator of the universe on your own two feet without forgiveness. So I need to ask, need to ask, have you come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness yet? Because I want to take a moment to make sure you've done that. Today is a great day because we've been told great news. Jesus doesn't just call out this massive problem, but he offers a solution, the only solution. If you're someone who has not been forgiven for their sins yet, why not do it today? Just speak in the quietness of your own heart and say, God, I'm a sinner. I believe who Jesus is and need his forgiveness. Please forgive me. If you want to do that today, why not say that to God? You can come tell me afterwards if you'd like. For others of us, we might be bored of Jesus' gift of forgiveness. It's lost its power in our life. You're a Christian, and you're thinking, I'm a bit over the sin and forgiveness stuff. I've got other problems. You don't. This is it. This is the biggest issue we have. This is what matters. For this very reason, God the Son, Jesus, came, lived, and died for us. This is the reason he came, nothing else. This past week, as I was working on this talk, I had a handful, several in fact, other applications and take-home points. I scrapped them all. As I looked more at this passage, the more I realized that there's nothing else more important that I want you to leave here with. 
in Jesus, we see the size of this problem of ours, but also its solution. Have you recognized this? Have you received God's great gift of forgiveness? Why don't we pray together and be thankful for that? Dear Heavenly Father, we see the great cost this gift is to you, and we are so thankful that you've offered a solution in your Son, Jesus Christ. We're sorry for the times that we've overlooked our sin, been complacent, been ignorant, and not treated you as you ought. And so we come before you now uh, only by the blood and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and are thankful. Uh, We have brought to our knees before you and ask that you continue to forgive us and show us grace and mercy each and every day. Please help us to live lives that honor you for the remainder of this year and for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.